for many of us, life sort of goes back to normal. Uh, if you have kids, they go back to school, and you start to get back into a routine when kids are out of school. Things are just, well, they're just kind of crazy. You know, they're, they're at camp, then they're up late, then they're, who knows what they're doing. You're, you know, getting, sweeping up sand out of their uh, bed day in and day out because they've been to the beach and they've been, it's just kind of a crazy time of year. And then in September, we kind of get back to normal. We get, uh, it's kind of a schedule, a rigid schedule where you're forced to be here and there and and all of that. And so in many respects, when you come back in September, it's almost like the new year, right? It's almost like a new year. And I think because of that, it's actually a really good time to, well, I don't want to say New Year's resolutions, but kind of like new fall resolutions, right? We're coming into the fall semester with uh, re-engaging in this sort of more structured life, and it's an opportunity for us to kind of assess our lives, assess where we are, maybe start thinking about some things that we feel like perhaps we should be doing differently, that sort of thing. And I think it's a great time to be asking this question of what, as Christians, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to live the life of a, of a Christian? What does it mean not, not simply to believe certain things, but then how does that play itself out in the way that we live our lives? And I believe that the passage we're going to look at today is actually a passage that speaks a lot to how uh, we as Christians are to live our lives. It, it may not seem that way on the surface. It's kind of an interesting section of Scripture, but as we dig into it, I'm hopeful we're going to be able to draw a few things from this that will be impactful to us in figuring out exactly what does it look like to live the life of a Christian. Now, we're continuing in this series, a series on the book of Exodus, and of course, the book of Exodus is a book that chronicles uh, the life of the people of Israel at a particular time in their history. Uh, It's a time in which they were living in Egypt. They had been there for several hundred years. They had come to Egypt under great circumstances. Well, they came into great circumstances. They came there. There had been a famine, and that had forced them to move to Egypt where there was food. And so they'd been living there for several hundred years, settled in there. But over the course of time, uh, the Egyptian government had become increasingly oppressive upon them to the point now we find themselves really in a place of slavery. And so as the story of Exodus unfolds, we find that God hears the people of Israel crying out, a calling for him, and so he raises up this man Moses to come and help deliver them out of Egypt. And so we get this kind of classic famous scene where Moses comes before Pharaoh and says, hey, uh, God wants you to let his people go. And, And that's what we encounter in this passage. Now, of course, what we discover in this passage is that Pharaoh isn't really all excited about this. His heart is not warm to the idea of letting the Israelites go. And, of course, what's, well, even somewhat more remarkable is that a number of times in the narrative, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And that's a a section of Scripture that is one of the most, I think, difficult and confusing for so many people, right? Because think about what's going on here. Uh, God here is going to, well, there's going to be this struggle between him and Pharaoh, and, and God is going to 
going to do some pretty serious things to Pharaoh and the Egyptian people because Pharaoh refuses to change, refuses to listen to God because his heart is hard, and yet the, the Bible seems to suggest that, that God's hardening his heart to do this. Now, what, what, do we, what do we make of this? Well, there are a couple of things that I think are probably worth observing. The first thing to notice is that Pharaoh's initial turn away from God's people, it, it doesn't say anything about God orchestrating that. In other words, when Pharaoh puts them into slavery, it doesn't say that God told Pharaoh to put them into slavery. And so it seems that by the time that God comes along and hardens Pharaoh's heart, there's a sense in which that's the direction that Pharaoh's heart was already going. And so one way of reading it is to say that God is simply handing Pharaoh over to his own desires. Like, Pharaoh, if that's where your heart is, then I will honor that. And that could be simply what he means by hardening his heart. We find, for example, in the book of Romans that when, when God unleashes his wrath, in the book of Romans, Paul talks about God unleashing his wrath. What God does is he simply hands people over to their desires. He says, if that's what you want, then I will, I will allow you to move in that direction. So it's possible that we could read it that way. Now, of course, another important thing to notice is that throughout the Bible, um, there are times when, uh, there are many times when things happen which seem to go contrary, when people do things that seem to go contrary to what a Christian would do, somebody who's trying to honor God. And time and time again, it seems to suggest that this is all part of God's plan. So, for example, uh, Judas betrays Jesus. Pilate crucifies Jesus. And we find in the Scriptures this saying, it says, so that the Scriptures would be fulfilled. So there's this weird sense in which all of these things, even when people turn away from God, is somehow within the scope of God's providence. But here's what's really important to notice, is that when you look at these narratives, you look at Judas, you look at Pilate, the way the Bible describes them is it does not describe them as though they are just puppets. It doesn't describe them that way. It describes them as, no, no, these are individuals who are making their own choices uh, in terms of whether to honor God or not to honor God. And so what we discover in the Bible is really there is just a tension that sits there. There is this tension between uh, God's sovereignty over all things and our own decisions and our own freedom, and it just kind of sits there. And I'll tell you that, honestly, for me, that used to really bother me. I used to be really bothered, and I, and I wanted to figure it out. I wanted to solve. What, what is it? Is God sovereign over our decisions, or, or do we have this freedom of choice that is outside of God's sovereignty? And I've wrestled with it for many years, and then I came to realize that this tension that sits there in the Scripture is, is actually, it's not a problem to be solved. It is a mystery to stand in awe of that there's almost something about that tension that rings more true uh, than, than any kind of explanation one way or the other, that, that just the ambiguity of it, the complicatedness of it, I believe actually rings true. Uh, one thing to just kind of notice, and I won't go off on this too long, but, but this problem of like, do we have true freedom of choice? That doesn't go away if you remove God from the equation. Right? In our sort of secular, naturalistic world, the question of whether or not human beings actually have freedom 
is a, is a debatable question. In, in fact, science, it's difficult for science to ever acknowledge that we have our own human freedom because science is always looking for some sort of natural cause, natural cause, natural cause. And so science could, it would almost be copping out for science to say, oh, yeah, there's, there's human freedom. No, science is always trying to get in and figure out what is the natural cause of it. So in, in other words, this question doesn't go away even if you pull God out of the equation. What I love about the scriptures is that it recognizes this and just leaves it there in tension. So again, this is not a problem to be solved. This is really a mystery to stand in awe of. So back to the narrative. Uh, uh, Moses comes to Pharaoh and on behalf of God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened and Pharaoh says, No. So then we enter into this section of the narrative where God unleashes these ten plagues. The next three chapters, God unleashes these plagues on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And we are, uh, we're not going to like spend a week on each plague, right? So it's not like this week it's blood and then next week is frogs and then the next week is flies and then gnats. And, you know, we're not, we're not going to do that because I, I, I actually think this is one of these sections of scripture where you get the most out of it when you take the the entirety of it and see uh, what is going on. And when we take these plagues that are unleashed over the next three chapters or so in the book of Exodus, here's what I think we discover. We're going to highlight th- uh, three things about God that we learn from these plagues and one thing that we learn about ourselves. Okay, that's what I want to kind of unpack for you this morning. Three things that we learn about God and one thing that we learn about ourselves. And you know what? I actually think that's a, a pretty good ratio, right? Learn three things about God to every one thing about yourself. We live in a society which we are absolutely infatuated with ourselves, aren't we? I mean, we, we want to we wanna know about ourselves, right? I mean, we live in this age where we, we pay therapists thousands of dollars to help us find ourselves, right? I've got to find myself, right? And, and then there's like, there's the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram. That's all the rage now, the Enneagram, right? You got your Enneagram yet? And, and like, you, you know, you do the Myers-Briggs uh, test or you do the Enneagram test and, and then it tells you what you are and, and you're like, finally, something that understands me, right? I finally know who I am. I've discovered myself. We are infatuated with discovering who we are. And I think that the Bible gives a corrective to that. There's a sense in which, look, it's good to try to figure yourself out, but what you really need to learn about is God. That in fact, the more you know about God, the less you really need to know about yourself. The more you know about God, the more you really can come to a clearer understanding of who you are. And apart from knowing God, you can take all the tests you want. You'll never know who you are. So I think this is a pretty good ratio. We're going to learn three things about God, and then out of those three things, we're going to see one thing about ourselves. All right, here are the three things. And I got this, uh, this basic outline from Tim Keller. His work on this, I think, is exceptional. He highlights these three, three things that emerge out of these plagues about God. God is a unique judge, a natural judge, and a saving judge. He is a unique judge, 
a natural judge and a saving judge. Now, you may notice that within these three characteristics of God, there's a commonality. That when we look at the plagues, what we discover is that God is a judge. God is a God of judgment. That when we look at the plagues, this is one of the quintessential passages in the Bible about God's judgment, right? I mean, you watch the, you, you read through these, these three chapters, these ten plagues that come, and it's, it's like watching an exceptionally lopsided boxing where the guy just keeps going down, but he's a glutton for punishment. He keeps getting up, even though, like, both of his eyes are swollen shut and his nose is broken. He just keeps getting up. That's kind of like what's going on here. Pharaoh just is a glutton for punishment. He keeps getting up, and he keeps experiencing the judgment and the wrath of God. Now, here's the thing. In our culture, when we look at this idea of God as a God of judgment, suggests that there are two attitudes that tend to emerge. Two attitudes in our culture about this idea that God is a God of judgment. The first one is, is sort of almost a, a flippant, cavalier acceptance of God's judgment. Just sort of flippant and cavalier acceptance of God's judgment. I'll never forget when I was about 10 years old, I think when I was 10 when this first happened, my parents put me on a plane by myself for the first time. I think I was 10. And uh, no cell phones then, right? I mean, there's no, if I get lost, man, I'm not coming back. Right? I don't know, maybe that, was, maybe that was their hope. I'm not really sure. Anyway, so they put me on a plane to fly to Evansville, Indiana to visit my grandpa and my grandma. And uh, this, this is something that I did a couple of times over the years. I would fly out by myself, spend a week with my grandparents. And I have such incredibly wonderful memories of the time I spent with my grandparents. They just spoiled me, basically, you know, just pretty much gave me whatever I wanted. That's how it kind of felt. Um, but I remember one of the things that I would do with my grandpa is he loved to go for a Sunday drive, right, even if it wasn't Sunday, right? I mean, he, he just would love to go out and, and drive in his Cadillac, right? He had a, always had a new Cadillac every time I came out. And this is like in the 80s, you know, those big Cadillacs in the 70s, 80s. And he would take me for a drive, and I, and I, like, I still, like, it always reeked of cigar smoke, because he was a big cigar smoker, and, and, and all of this. And so we would, we would get in his Cadillac, and we would go for a drive out in the countryside uh, near Evansville, Indiana. And I remember one time, we're, we're, driving, we're driving along, and a car just zips right by us, just passes us, just foosh. I mean, and it felt, it felt like the car passed us going about 100 miles an hour. That's what it felt like. Now, truthfully, it was probably only going about 40 miles an hour because my grandpa drives like 15, 20 miles an hour. Uh, but when you're going 15 miles an hour, 40 feels like 100. So this car just zips right by. And I remember my grandpa, uh, and I think he might have been a little bit on edge because my mom had told him he wasn't allowed to smoke cigars when I was in the car. So I think he was a little bit antsy to begin with. Uh, but he just kind of lets out. He says, he looks at the guy and he goes, drive on, fool. Hell's only half full. Right? Drive on, fool. Hell's only half full. And I think that, that he was, he was kind of joking, but I, I think that that statement actually it represents a kind of attitude that is present in much of America with regards to God's judgment, almost like a flippant, cavalier acceptance of it. Almost like, yeah, 
God is a God of judgment, and all them wicked people, they better look out because when he comes, it's going to be hotter than a 4th of July barbecue, right? I mean, that's sort of this attitude, cavalier, flippant attitude that some people have with regards to God's judgment. That's one perspective. Then there's an entirely different attitude in our culture about God's judgment. And that is almost just this flippant, dismissive attitude which says, look, I could never believe in a God of judgment. I read the Bible, I read about a God of judgment, like, no, that's just, how can he be a God of love and a God of judgment? There's just, that's what I don't like about the Bible. Don't read that stuff about God's judgment. I just can't buy that. And what I want to suggest is as we look at this, both of those perspectives are missing the point here. That what's going on is more nuanced, much richer, much more complex, I think, much more full than either of these two sort of flippant attitudes towards judgment. So we're looking at this. God is a God of judgment. He is a unique judge, a natural judge, and a saving judge. First of all, he is a unique judge. In many respects, a big part of what this entire narrative is about is God demonstrating that he is unique amongst all gods. That Egypt was a a place that was very, well, they they worshipped many different gods. And different people worshipped different gods. Um, It was a very, uh, it was a, a very multicultural environment, actually, at this time. There were a lot of different peoples had come to live in that area, and they sort of brought with them uh, they're different gods that they worship. And there was sort of like this attitude of, well, that, okay, you, you worship your gods and we'll worship our gods. And, and maybe your gods are just different names for our gods. It's sort of, sort of that sort of an attitude. I mean, in fact, it's really just a lot like, well, Manhattan and, and much of America today. Egypt was a, a pluralistic society that sort of believed that all gods were the same. You worship your gods, we'll worship our gods. I think we sort of have this attitude that pluralism in our society is like progressive, right? We're we're enlightened. We're enlightened now because we're pluralists. And and, and actually, uh, pluralism is incredibly ancient. It's it's more ancient than than the, the progressives are those who hold to the biblical truth. But that's what it was like. They they sort of had this sort of pluralistic attitude towards uh, gods, and, and in this narrative, what it's elevating is this idea, no, 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 God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is unique. He's different. He's superior. And, and what we, the struggle that we see here is a struggle that we even see in our own context today, right? Because we live in this time and place where if you believe that your God is superior, then that's seen as intolerant, Right? If you believe that your, your God is, is really the one that we should all be looking towards, that somehow that is intolerant. Now, and I've said this before, the, the problem is, is that if that's your attitude, that it's intolerant to believe that somebody's got to superior, that attitude is just as intolerant as those who believe their God is right. So in other words, if I say, look, you can worship your God, but you can't believe that your God is superior to another God. What you're saying is, if you don't believe what I believe, then you're wrong. If you don't believe that all gods are the same, then you're wrong, and I won't tolerate that attitude. 
You see, it's, it's, if that's what we mean by intolerant, then in the end, everybody's intolerant. Because everybody thinks that they're right, even if what they think is right is that everybody's right, and that if you think you're right, you're wrong, you still think you're right and they're wrong. And so if that's what it means to be intolerant, then everybody is intolerant. And so what I would suggest is, listen, it's not so much a question of, intolerance isn't so much a question of whether or not you believe this or that, but ultimately how you interact with people, how you present that, how you treat that. But it's important for us to realize this, because there's no question that what this is saying is that the God of the Bible is to be elevated as supreme, as the God of all things, over and against any other God. Now, what is unique? That's the thing, right? What is so unique about this God? Well, hold that thought because we're going to come back to it. The first thing we notice in this passage, and we'll unpack what it is, but I just want to state first that it is, God is a unique judge. Secondly, we discover that God is a natural judge, natural judge. What do I mean by that? Well, what's interesting if you read through the narrative of the plagues is that there's something almost the very opposite of what you see. There's something significant in almost the opposite of what sits uh, on the front and sort of stands out, right? When you read through these three chapters, all you can think to yourself is, wow. Look at this supernatural display of power, right? It's just this supernatural display of of power. God, you know, it's frogs and it's flies and God's, you know, well, Moses, you know, he reaches out his staff and the river turns to blood. He reaches out his staff and frogs come come out of the water. And what's interesting is that actually if, if you look at it carefully and you look at the progression of the plagues in the Bible, a number of scholars have noticed this, there's actually something significantly natural about it. It's much more natural than you might have originally noticed. Think about it this way. So the first, the first plague is Moses turns the water to blood, right? And uh, now there's a lot of different ways in which you can read and interpret exactly what happens, but what we know happens is that the fish died, right? It says all the fish died, the water's contaminated, the fish die. Then, what happens after the fish die? Well, what's the next plague? The next plague is that the frogs all come out of the river, right? And, you know, if the water's contaminated, the frogs are going to, well, they're going to come out of the river. And then what happens when the frogs come out of the river? Well, they, they start climbing into people's beds. They start climbing into people's cupboards. They start climbing into people's pots. Um, and then they die, right? So now you've got all these dead frog carcasses all over the place. And then you'll notice what happens after the, the frogs all die and their carcasses are all rotting around Egypt. Flies and gnats come, right? Well, which is kind of what you would expect if you had a bunch of rotting fish and a bunch of rotting flog, uh, uh, frogs. You would anticipate that gnats and flies would come around. And then, and then what happens after all the gnats and the flies come? The, the next plague is that the livestock gets sick. Hmm, that's interesting. That's probably what would happen if the flies and the gnats were coming, carrying disease. The animals get sick. And then what happens after the animals get sick? The people get sick. They get boils on their bodies. And so we, we, we find throughout this, this interesting progression that is remarkably natural. It's really easy to, to miss this. And it seems to be what is happening is it's painting a picture of the undoing of creation. In other words, what you discover in 
the, the story of the plagues is that it's almost undoing what happened in Genesis 1 and 2. That everything is turning to chaos. Nature is turning to chaos. If you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, what you read about is that it starts with chaos. It says that the Spirit of God hovered over the deep, the formless deep. And the language there is really talking about a world where there's a lack of order. It's just sort of chaos. And then as you read the Genesis narrative, what it's describing is God bringing order to chaos. In fact, over and over again, there is a line in the first couple chapters of Genesis where as God creates the land and the sea separates the sea from the, uh, from the land and as creates the birds and the animals, <coughs> there's, there's this line where he consistently says, and it was good. It was good. And if you look at the word that is used for good, it's a word that consistently refers to order. God is bringing order out of chaos. And what you discover here is the undoing of that order, and it is unleashing chaos. And so here's the, the, the point that sort of emerges from this, theological point, which I think is emerging from this. And that is that when we turn away from God, there are natural consequences to that. There are natural consequences to that. That in, a, in, in effect, God's judgment often comes in the natural undoing of things. That there is a relationship between our rebellion against God and this, uh, and this sort of undoing of creation. One of the things you discover in, in Romans, again in Romans chapter 1 and 2, is when God, uh, Paul says that God pours out his wrath on humanity. And again, how does he pour out his wrath on humanity? He just hands them over to their own devices. He says, if that's the direction you want to go, try it and see where it goes. And his point is that if you turn away from me, it will naturally lead to chaos and disaster, and that that is in many respects the way in which God's wrath is measured out. Another way of putting it is that there is an organic connection between obedience and blessing and disobedience and judgment. There is an organic connection to it. And, and Paul says this in, in Galatians chapter 6. He says, God will not be mocked. He says, a man reaps what he sows. Right? If you, if you sow, using this planting imagery, if you sow to the things of God, you will reap a harvest. But if you sow against God, you're going to reap corruption and disaster. That that's just naturally what happens. If you disobey God, it leads to cursing and, and disaster. And if you, if you honor God and follow him, that will naturally lead to blessing. In other words, God's judgment comes, well, let's put it this way. It's a little, a little bit like this. So last year, uh, I went to the doctor for my annual checkup, and for the first time in my life, usually the doctor's like, oh, you're fine, you're healthy, you're good to go. And this time, he, he's like, no, you look good, you look, you look good, we, look, we looked at your, your blood, and uh, you know what, you might, you probably just need to maybe eat a little less sweets. And I'm like, oh. Now, it wasn't like drastic, he wasn't like, you need to come back, you know, in a month and we'll test it. He's like, well, you know, we'll, I'll see you at your next checkup a year from now. But you probably need to maybe not eat so much sweets. Now, what he was doing here is he was warning me, right? But here's what he was not saying. It's not like I went home and I said, 
oh, man, if, if, I, if I start eating a lot of sweets, then the next time I see the doctor, he's going to punch me in the face. Right? That's not how the, the wrath of the doctor comes, right? No, no, he's telling you, if you don't do this, this is what's going to, it's naturally going to lead to disaster. In many respects, that's what the judgment of God is like. If you don't obey him, if you don't follow him, the natural consequences of turning from the very one who created everything is that it's going to lead to disaster, right? If, if you turn away from God, there are natural consequences to that. You turn away from God, there are psychological consequences to that. You turn away from God and you begin to lose your identity, you begin to try to find your identity in all kinds of things that can't actually give you a healthy identity. You turn away from God and you start to looking to your career. You start looking to your reputation. You start looking to, you know, you, you start looking to so many things that ultimately cannot fulfill you. And, and you begin to suffer the consequences of that as a natural extension of your turning away from God. Uh, another example of this is that we'll, we'll just go with, Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not steal. What we need to realize about that command is that if you have a society that just disregards that command, like all of society, we we don't care about stealing. What happens? It's total social disintegration. God doesn't have to pour out anything other than just letting society go down that path. There There is an organic connection between our rebellion against God and the consequences that come to us. So in other words, when we think about the judgment of God, you know, don't think of it like, like pocket God. Did you ever have that game, pocket God on your phone? And you could, you, could be, you could just be God and you could go in there and you could like, like pick people up and just throw them into a, vol- a volcano, I think was one of the things you could do. Or, or you could make a volcano erupt and it would, you know, crush everybody. That's what we think of when we think of the wrath of God. And what this is getting at here is this idea, no, there is an organic connection between our rebellion against God and the consequences that come with it. So God is a natural God. First of all, God's a unique God. He's a natural God. And finally, he is a saving God. He's a saving God. One of the things that we might fail to notice as we're just reading through Uh, these plagues, is why he's doing this in the first place. What we discover is that his judgment is for the purpose of salvation. That's that's why he's a judge. He's he's unleashing judgment for the purposes of salvation. Um, we, We think that the idea of God as a God of judgment and God as a God of salvation are in conflict. But actually what we discover here is that it's actually through his judgment that he brings salvation, right? The people of Israel, they are enslaved, and what is he trying to do? He's trying to save them, and the way that he saves them is through judgment. And this is where one of the things we need to realize, and I I highlight this every time this issue comes up, is that actually in biblical Hebrew, one of the main words for judgment, mishpat, is a word that also means justice, It's the same word because the idea of God bringing justice is precisely that it involves judgment. In order for the oppressed to experience justice, there has to be judgment on the oppressor. So God's judgment is not in conflict with his justice. His judgment isn't 
it's through judgment that justice actually comes in the first place. Now, here's where we really see the uniqueness of this God. I mentioned before, he's a unique God. And then I left it out there for you to wait to see what's so unique about this God. Well, when we look at him as a saving, as a saving judge, here's what we discover. If you read through the story of the plagues, and then you come back and you read the Gospels, you begin to notice something eerily similar. That the story of the plagues in many respects parallels the closing chapters of the Gospels. In other words, the story of the plagues being unleashed on Egypt very much parallels the final days of the life of Jesus. That there is this sequential things getting worse and worse and worse for the Egyptians. But in the story of the Gospels, things get worse and worse and worse for Jesus. For the Egyptians, it starts with a with the fish dying, and, and, and then, then it gets worse, then their livestock uh, are killed. And then in the end, it's really interesting, and this is why I had Lissa read uh, two passages, is because in the end, one of the, the second to last plague, it's not really a plague, uh, but it just says that darkness came over the land. Darkness came over the land. At the very end of this sequence of plagues, darkness comes over the land. And of course, as you read the story of the final days of Jesus, what happens? Jesus is increasingly, first he's betrayed, then he's arrested, then he's mocked and ridiculed, then he's beaten, then he's crucified. And what does it say happens? It says that darkness came over the land. It says that darkness came over the land. Just like in, in the plagues, it says that darkness came over the land. And then the last plague in in the story of the Egyptians is it says that the firstborn son of the people of Egypt was killed. And of course, what is the very heart of the gospel? That the firstborn son of God himself was killed. You see, what this is pointing to is that, you see, throughout, if you look at, at, at world religions and you can find gods who bring judgment upon those who are wicked. But what you find in, in Christianity, and you find this nowhere else in Christianity than in Christianity, is that God himself takes that judgment upon himself so that we don't have to. The heart of the Christian faith is, is that Jesus took upon himself the judgment that we deserve. You see, and we're going to look at this more next week. But if we're honest, what we discover is that we are all like Pharaoh. We are all heart of heart. We all rebel against God. But the heart of the gospel, which emerges in the New Testament, is that ultimately, though we deserve that judgment, God himself takes it upon himself. God is a saving judge, and there is no other God who does that. So these are the three aspects of God that emerge from this passage. He is a unique judge, he is a natural judge, and he is a saving judge. So, those are the three things that we learn about God. Three of the things we learn about God. Now, one thing about ourselves. I'm just going to put it this way. In light of this picture of who God is, I'm just going to put it very simply. We should try harder 
but breathe easy. We should try harder in light of who God is, but we should breathe easier. First of all, we should try harder. And and, and let me just, (laughs) this is going to sound almost silly the way I put this. It's so simple, but I'm just going to put it this way. We should try harder to obey God. (laughs) We should try harder not to sin. And, And here's why. Right, Because there are natural consequences to sin. And you see, that is true whether you are a believer or not. There are natural consequences to turning away from God. This is why when we understand the nature of God, there's, there's no place for a sort of antinomianism, an anti-law, the sort of perspective that says, well, God loves me. He's going to love me no matter what I do, so it doesn't matter how I live my life. Well, the problem is, as we've seen, there is an organic connection between our actions and the consequences of those actions. And so that's true whether you are a believer or you're not a believer, that if you turn away from God, there are natural consequences that come to that. So we should try harder. But we should also breathe easier. Because ultimately it is true, God loves us no matter what we do. And those consequences for our sin, they are only temporary. Because God is a God who loves us so much that he died to to take upon himself the ultimate judgment for us. So we can breathe easier that when we fail, when we mess up, we don't need to beat ourselves up. Because God indeed is a saving judge. So we should try harder, breathe easier. So let me just kind of apply this here this way. We're about to jump into a new semester, fall semester. This is a time when, when for many of us, life kind of gets back to normal. Vacations are over, and we start, start to take stock of our lives. And here's just what I encourage you to do. I want to encourage all of us to try harder in terms of following Jesus. Let's try harder. I, I, let me just kind of put it a different way. I mean, honestly, we've got to ask ourselves this. How many of us really are trying hard to follow Jesus? It's a question I ask myself. It's a question I encourage you. Like, how, how are we really trying hard to follow Jesus? We need to make no mistake about it. Following Jesus takes effort. Following Jesus takes effort. It's hard, and it's almost harder now than, than it has ever been, right? We, we, uh, Western culture, in many respects, used to have built into its sort of social fabric. Um, there was a way in which the, the, the teachings and the beliefs of Jesus permeated so much more of our, of our culture, of our music, of our literature, of our education, in many respects was present in ways where we were always sort of encouraged to follow Jesus. Now, now that's, of course, not completely true. There are so many ways in which throughout the history of our society we have been absolutely nothing like Jesus. But there certainly was in the past, I think, a, a stronger natural support from our social institutions, from our our culture just in general, that isn't really there as much anymore. Which means that for us to follow Jesus is that much harder. It's going to be hard. It's it's going to take take effort. We've got to be intentional about it. Let me just say this plainly. How many of us, again, are really trying to follow Jesus? How many of us are really trying to love our neighbor as ourselves? For how many of us is that really... uh, 
the, the primary motivation of the way in which we live our lives. How many of us are, are trying to love our neighbor as ourselves? How many of us are, are really seeking to submit every area of our lives to God? How many of us are submitting our, our career goals and our financial goals and, and whatever goals they might be, how many of us are really submitting that to Jesus? I want to encourage you this fall to think about trying harder to follow Jesus. I think part of what that means remains refusing to settle in, refusing to settle. I, I think it's actually easy, especially for those of us who maybe have been Christians for many years and have grown up in the church and have sort of lived in the church, it's actually pretty easy for us to begin to think that, hey, you know what, I'm actually doing that. I'm actually following Jesus. I'm not the, pro- it's all these other people that aren't following Jesus, right? And we sort of get this added, well, I'm doing it. It's everybody else that needs to get their act together. And, and then it ends up sort of becoming this sort of condescending way of, of looking at people. I think to really follow Jesus is to always be evaluating ourselves, being less worried about comparing ourselves with what others are doing and, and recognizing, hey, God, there is so much of me that is still not submitted to you. I encourage you this fall to consider really just very simply trying harder to follow Jesus. Try harder, but breathe easier. Try harder, but breathe easier because, look, God, God loves you and he cares for you when you fail. You see, this, is, this I think is actually what makes it easier to, to, to try harder. What makes it easier to try harder is that you can relax. 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 When you fail, God loves you. And you never have to forget that, but I think that is actually what can motivate us can motivate us to try harder. I, I think breathing easier is the key to trying harder because here's actually one of the things we need to realize. <clears throat> one of the reasons why we often don't try hard to follow Jesus is because we're so busy trying to follow other things. You see, here's the reality. We are all working really hard all the time. It's just that oftentimes we're working really hard to follow other things. When I say try harder, I'm actually just telling you to shift where you're trying hard and try hard towards something that ultimately really is going to lead to life and the blessing. One of the primary reasons why we don't try hard to follow Jesus is because we're too busy trying to make money, trying to make a name for ourselves, trying to find joy in something other than God. Honestly, how many of us, the reality is when we think about our joy in life, How many of us are really trying to find joy, ultimate joy, in something other than God? And here's what I want to tell you. When we try to find joy in something other than God, it gets harder and harder and harder to find joy in those things. Isn't that true? And there's something you're trying to get joy out of that oftentimes it gets harder and harder. I mean, let me give you an example. I I think of it this way. You ever been like, you, you go on a vacation, and it's just like, it is amazing, right? And you, you find like the perfect, the perfect resort, uh, and they just, and the food's fantastic, and the, the beach is amazing, and you just have so much joy. And so then you're like, oh my gosh, next year, man, we're going back there. That place is awesome, right? 
And so you, 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 I mean, now you're working really hard to make sure financially you can go back to that place where you had all of this joy. Um, and so, so you go back there, and it rains. Or they got a new chef. Or even if they didn't, even if it's exactly the same, it often doesn't quite have the same joy. The more you go back to it, it's like it gets, you keep having to, keep having to up the ante. You've got to keep doing a little bit more for that joy to come. You see, when you try to find joy in something other than God, it gets harder and harder and harder. That's why we always need more and more and more and more. And sometimes it's slow and it's gradual. But you see it in our society, probably see it in your own life, that you always need a little bit more. So friends, when I'm telling you, let's try harder to follow Jesus, I'm just telling you, switch whatever it is that you're, you're trying so hard to find joy in. Why don't we reorient ourselves and try working hard to follow the one who really can? Give us joy. So friends, first of all, stop. Just stop. Whatever it is that you're trying so hard to establish in your life, maybe you just need to stop. Maybe you need to pause. Maybe you need to breathe easier. And then as you breathe easier, you can begin to start trying to follow Jesus. Will you pray with me? Dear God, we come before you this morning. We praise you for your grace. We praise you that you are a God. You are a God of love and mercy. And because of that, you are a God of justice. God, we praise you that you will not stand for oppression. You will not stand for evil. You are resolutely against it precisely because you love us. God, we praise you that you are a God who died on a cross, submitted yourself to the wrath that we deserve, God, so that we can enter into the fullness of life with you. God, I pray that you would, you would make it clear to us that the things that we are seeking to find life in ultimately will fail us. God, may we shift our energy towards you. God, that we can find life. We pray this in Jesus' name.